Welcome back, podcast fans. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and this is Parenting Impossible, the special needs survival podcast. Today, I have some important things to talk to you about. First of all, this week, the Supreme Judicial Court, the Supreme Court of the U.S., um, heard a very important case to many of us in the disability community called Health and Hospital Corp versus Tlevsky. Susie Tlevsky sued the Indiana State Agency that managed her father's care before he died. And a ruling against her could strip millions of vulnerable Americans of their right to sue states when they don't receive benefits allowed by law. She um, claimed on behalf of her father that um, he was over-medicated to keep him asleep, that his dementia was mismanaged, and that they transferred him involuntarily to faraway facilities, possibly, so his family couldn't keep an eye on him. The federal courts allowed the case to go forward, meaning they allowed her Uh, lawsuit to move forward against HHC, but then HHC brought it to the Supreme Court for review. So why did the court accept this case for review? They only accept one to 2% of the cases that are brought before them. It really makes you question whether the court selected this case to make new law. And that is probably the case. Civil rights lawsuits are the primary way that the public can hold state agencies accountable as actors. Think about this. 83 million Americans are enrolled in Medicaid around the country. And that's almost nearly 25% of our population. When states in the past tried to cap the benefits of recipients with disabilities, Civil rights lawsuits have helped them gain access to much needed care, including and especially community-based supports and services. Huge demand and outcry went up for HHC to withdraw their petition, which can be done even though oral arguments were heard on November 8th. This brings me to another key key um, issue or another key thing that happened in this past week, which is that the LC in the case Olmstead versus LC died at age 55 on November 5th, 2022. This was a 1999 Supreme Court case. And if you haven't heard of it, she was a Georgia artist with a, uh, intellectual disability and mental illness. And she was institutionalized over and over and over again. But when she would go home, she would not have the supports that she needed to combat the issues that she was facing due to her disabilities and therefore would keep ending up back in the hospital. Medicaid would only pay for her hospital stay, but they would not pay for any supports in the community at that level of care or even a lower level of care. So the Supreme Court in that Olmstead case, that famous Olmstead case held that people with disabilities have a qualified right to receive state 
funded supports and services in the community rather than institutions when a three-part test is met. One, the treating clinician determines when community supports are appropriate. What a, no what a novel concept, right? Having the physician or the treating uh, clinician get to decide what their patient needs. Two, the person does not object to living in the community, meaning we hear their voice and we honor their choice of where they would like to be. And three, a reasonable option or accommodation when balanced with other similarly, similarly situated individuals with disabilities. So it has to meet that reasonable option slash accommodation test as well. So the Olmstead case was brought under the Americans with Disabilities Act, which is a civil rights act. And it chills me to think that Olmstead might be, you know, effectively overturned if HHC prevails in this case, and it's not allowed to move forward because the Supreme Court decides that individuals do not have the right to sue states who are giving care. Um, I hope that chills you as much as it does me. Again, there's a huge outcry right now for HHC to withdraw their case, which they absolutely can, even though oral arguments were heard this week. And it's really important to understand the place that all of this has for us. We've been fighting a battle for so long, actually since Olmstead, for over 20 years, to overcome what we call an institutional bias, meaning you can get services in a hospital, a nursing home, a facility, and Medicaid will pay for it. But if you want to live in your community, be at home and receive the same types of care and have Medicaid pay for it, there's a lot of hoops. There's a lot of blocks in your way from being able to do that being able to receive adequate care and funding for those supports. And little by little, we've been eating away at this institutional bias. At the same time that this case for HHC is moving forward in the Supreme Court, we have new Medicaid proposed regulations, which are there to primarily, again, impact and lessen the institutional bias and support people in the community who need Medicaid, who need state services and who need Medicaid to pay for it. Remember what I said, almost one quarter of our population in the US relies on Medicaid for their healthcare needs. And healthcare needs are broad when it comes to Medicaid. This is very exciting in so many ways because a lot of things are coming together all at once, and it's time for us as a, as a community, as a country, to look at how we, how we serve people in the disability community, how we provide care, and how we pay for it. So I encourage you to 
learn more about this, to get educated about Olmstead, about the HHC case, and to stay informed in what's going on. You can do this by connecting with the ARC of the U.S. You can do this by connecting um, with a another disability service organization in your state. For us, it would be the Disability Law Center. There's also the Center for Public Representation that's in Washington, D.C. and also has an office here in Massachusetts. They are a watchdog organization and they're keeping their eye on all of this. But keep in, stay informed, understand, you know, where we're going with institutional bias. Now, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk to you about getting ready for the holidays, which can be a very difficult and challenging time for many of us, many families. Um, for me, this is a double whammy of a year, of a time of year, because my daughter Elizabeth died nine years ago on November 18th. And, you know, let's just be honest. It's not an easy time when you've lost a child um, during your time of remembrance. And add to that, that it's a time of year when you get together to celebrate family. And lots of things happen that accentuate that loss. You see people that you don't normally see all year, such as grandparents, aunts, uncles. Um, you take time off work, so you have more downtime and time out of your daily routine to think about your loss. It's also particularly a time of celebration with children. Um, that includes giving gifts and eating sweets and all kinds of fun things. Many traditions that people follow during this time of year. This is impactful for families, even if you don't have a loss, even if you haven't lost a child, but because you're struggling, because someone in your family is disabled and it's particularly difficult, your wounds are raw at this time of year. So if you're a caregiver, if you are an individual with a disability and family is difficult, if you've experienced a loss like I have, you know, I, I want you to think about a couple of things. Um, so for me, our new holiday traditions are evolving and have been ever since Elizabeth was born with a profound disability and medical needs but particularly more so after her loss nine years ago. And, you know, your new holiday journeys will be your own for sure. Look, I'm also not an expert and by no means am I trying to offer you any type of clinical advice. Just want to share through my experiences, things that have helped me that perhaps will help you. Also in my practice, I've had the opportunity to speak with many families who've been through a loss like mine or who've lived a life like ours. It's not an experience that you want to share with families, but it is, it's comforting to not be alone in all of this. So here are my tips. Here are some things that you might want to try that work for me. First and foremost, telling stories of remembrance. This is my favorite and best advice. 
I love telling stories of Elizabeth. Like, remember when Elizabeth laughed so hard that the milk came flying out of her mouth and then the dog ate it off the floor? You know, we laugh about so many things because Elizabeth was funny and sweet and really was a presence in our lives. You can also pull out videos and photo albums. Do we have those anymore? <laughs> Maybe just pull out your Facebook. Um, this can also help with the memories. Some family members and friends may not have known your child or your loved one that well, or they may not know what it's like in your family right now. So this will help them enormously in both supporting you and sharing in your joys and also your hardships and your sorrows. Personally, I love the idea that this keeps Elizabeth's memory alive because I'm always afraid of the idea that people are going to forget her and that the world is moving on without her. And every year that goes by, I get more fearful of that. Next, a celebration meal that includes your person's favorite food items. So, you know, we're Italian. So food is uh, love for us. Um, and that's true for many families, that food is part of your traditions. In our family, I still serve some of Elizabeth's favorite things on certain holidays. Christmas breakfast has pancakes and Easter will definitely have ham. But it also includes other things like eating popcorn, pizza, and potato chips and dip while we're watching our favorite holiday movies like Planes, Trains, and Automobiles or Christmas Vacation. There are definitely traditions that you have around food and you want to bring those in. If you haven't got one, start one. All right, number three, hanging decorations that your child or your person has made for you or that are special to your family. So first and foremost, I say this every year, but I really have to say it again. Thank you so much to every teacher, aide, and nurse who helped Elizabeth make every Christmas ornament, every Mother's Day card, every Thanksgiving poem, and even the wedding card that I got when my husband Mark and I married. I pull them out and I go through them from time to time. And then I hang them throughout the house to have her close to me during the holidays. If you haven't lost somebody, but you're just struggling like many of us do, it's still just a reminder of the humanity of your person and of the connection that you have to your family. Okay, number four, very important doing for others. During this holiday time, and if it's a time of sorrow for you, like it is for me, this maybe even goes doubly so. It really helps me to give to others. It's a fact that getting up out of your own misery to help other people can be just what you need to beat those holiday blues, to get up out of your own way, kind of, to you know, really stop struggling and stop hurting. You can sign up to serve a holiday meal or de deliver presents or, or warm clothes at your local church, temple, shelter. 
can go to a local nursing home and sing holiday songs and so much more. There are a lot of things that you can do to give back to your local community. And again, those connections are so important. So number five, it's all about self-care. I know everybody's talking about self-care, but it is so important. And you really need to find a way to give yourself some space and grace during this time period. Please be sure to take some time off for yourself, some downtime. You may need time to be sad and grieve your loss or grieve for the life that you wished you had. That's okay. Be sure to seek counsel. If that's in your self-care routine, get lots of sleep, something I fail to do so often. Exercise, eat well. The holidays can be stressful under the best of circumstances and grief can be tricky and sneaks up on you. I also think it's good to practice the art of saying no. If, if it helps, let someone else cook dinner for 20 people. It can be very stressful to do all that work. You know, and as I mentioned previously, seeing people that you haven't seen all year who are naturally going to want to ask you, how are you doing? How's Johnny doing in school? All those trigger questions. Holy crap. I used to get anxious for weeks before the holidays about what people were going to say or ask. And then what would happen? I would be sleepless for days on end, cooking, cleaning, and also imagining the worst conversations that I was going to have getting ready for the day. That's a recipe for disaster and you know it. I was tired, sad, and on the edge of a knife. And of course, I would end up either being completely sad and withdrawn or blowing up at people. Not good. So this year, you know, since my daughter Caroline is old enough to choose for herself where she would like to go, and she's spending time out of state with her dad, my husband and I have decided to hang out with our very good friends and have a Friendsgiving. I hope you find your way to both old and new traditions that work for you and your family. I am rooting for you. As always, I'm here. If you have any questions, concerns, issues you want to raise, please feel free to reach out to me. And as always, I would love it if you could rate and review this podcast. It's so important and it helps us get this content to people that really need it. So thank you so much. Many blessings to you. Have a wonderful holiday season. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I just wanted to take a second to say how much I appreciate you taking the time to listen to these podcasts. I'm having a blast doing them, and I hope that you're finding the content to be what you were really hoping. If you are, please take a second to leave a rating and a review. It's so helpful in getting this content out to people who really need to hear it. Thank you so much.